Section eight of Mind Amongst the Spindles, edited by Charles Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Joan of Arc. When in the perusal of history, I meet with the names of females whose circumstances, or their own inclinations, have brought thus openly before the public eye, I can seldom repress the desire to know more of them. Was it choice, or necessity, which led them to the battlefield or council hall? Had the woman's heart been crushed within their breasts, or did it struggle with the sterner feelings which had then found entrance there? Were they recreant to their own sex, or were the deed which claimed the historian's notice but the necessary results of the situations in which they had been placed? These are questions which I often ask, and yet I love not in old and musty records to meet with names which long ere this should have perished within the hearts upon which love had written them for happier surely is woman when in one manly heart she has been shrined a queen than when upon some powerful throne she sits with an untrembling form and an unquailing eye to receive the homage and command the services of loyal thousands i do not love to read of women transformed in all save outward form into one of the sterner sex and when I see, in the memorials of the past, that this has apparently been done, I would fain overleap the barriers of bygone time, and know how it has been effected. Imagination goes back to the scenes which must have been witnessed then, and perhaps unaided portrays the minute features of the sketch, of which history has preserved merely the outlines. But I sometimes read of woman, when I would not know more of the places where she has rendered herself conspicuous, when there is something so noble and so bright in the character I have given her, that I fear a better knowledge of trivial incidents might break the spell which leads me to love and admire her, where, perhaps, the picture which my fancy has painted glows in colors so brilliant that a sketch by truth would seem beside it but a somber shadow. Joan of Arc is one of these heroines of history, who cannot fail to excite an interest in all who love to contemplate the female character. From the gloom of that dark age, when woman was but a plaything and a slave, she stands in bold relief, its most conspicuous personage. Not, indeed, as a queen, but as more than a queen, even the preserver of her nation's king. Not as a conqueror, but as the savior of her country. Not as a man, urged in his proud career by mad ambition's stirring energies, but as a woman, guided in her brilliant course by woman's noblest impulses, so does she appear in that lofty station which for herself she won. Though high and dazzling was the eminence to which she rose, yet t'was not thus, oh, t'was not thus, her dwelling-place was found. Low in the veil of humble life was the maiden born and bred, and thick as the veil which time and distance have thrown over every passage of her life, yet that which rests upon her early days is most impenetrable." and much room is there here for the interested inquirer, and imagination may rest almost unchecked amid the slight revelations of history. Joan is a heroine, a woman of mighty power, wearing herself the habiliments of man, and guiding armies to battle and to victory, yet never to my eye is the warrior maid aught but woman. The ruling passion, the spirit which nerved her arm, illumined her eye and buoyed her heart, was woman's faith. I, it was power, and call it what ye may, say it was enthusiasm, fanaticism, madness, or call it, if ye will, what those did name it, who
who burned Joan at the stake. Still it was power, the power of woman's firm, undoubting faith. I should love to go back into Joan's humble home, that home which the historian has thought so little worthy of his notice, and in imagination I must go there, even to the very cradle of her infancy, and know all those influences which wrought the mind of Joan to that fearful pitch of wild enthusiasm when she declared herself the inspired agent of the Almighty. Slowly and gradually was the spirit trained to act like this, for though, like the volcano's fire, its instantaneous bursting forth was preceded by no prophet-herald of its coming, yet Joan of Arc was the same Joan ere she was made of Orleans, the same high-souled, pure, and imaginative being, the creature of holy impulses, and conscious of superior energies. It must have been so. A superior mind may burst upon the world, but never upon itself. There must be a feeling of sympathy with the noble and the gifted, a knowledge of innate, though slumbering powers. The neglected eaglet may lie in its mountain nest, long after the pinion is fledged, but it will fix its unquailing eye upon the dazzling sun, and feel a consciousness of strength in the untried wing. But let the mother-bird once call it forth, and far away it will soar into the deep blue heavens, or bathe and revel amidst the tempest clouds, and henceforth the eyrie is but a resting-place. As the diamond is formed, brilliant and priceless, in the dark bowels of the earth, even so, in the gloom of poverty, obscurity, and toil, was formed the mind of Joan of Arc. Circumstances were but the jeweller's cutting, which placed it where it might more readily receive the rays of light, and flash them forth with greater brilliancy. I have said that I must in imagination go back to the infancy of Joan, and note the incidents which shed their silent, hallowed influence upon her soul, until she stands forth an inspired being, albeit inspired by naught but her own imagination. The basis of Joan's character is religious enthusiasm. This is the substratum, the foundation of all that wild and mighty power which made her, the peasant girl, the savior of her country. But the flame must have been early fed. It was not merely an elementary portion of her nature, but it was one which was cherished in infancy, in childhood, and in youth, until it became the master passion of her being. Joan, the child of the humble and the lowly, was also the daughter of the fervently religious. The light of faith and hope illumines their little cot, and reverence for all that is good and true, and a trust which admits no shade of fear or doubt, is early taught the gentle child. Though faith in God's own promises was mingled with superstitious awe of those to whom all were then indebted for a knowledge of the truth, though priestly craft had united the wild and the false with the pure light of the gospel, and though Joan's religion was mingled with delusion and error, still it comprised all that is fervent and pure and truthful in the female heart. The first words her infant lips are taught to utter are those of prayer. Prayer, mayhap, to saints or virgin, but still to her then, and in all after-time, the aspirations of a spirit which delights in communion with the invisible. She grows older, and still, amidst ignorance and poverty, and toil, the spirit gains new light and fervor. With a mind alive to everything that is high and holy, she goes forth into a dark and sinful world, dependent upon her daily toil for daily bread. She lives among the thoughtless and the vile, but like that plant which opens to naught but light and air, and shrinks from all other contact, so her mind, amid the corruptions of the world, 
is shut to all that is base and sinful, though open and sensitive to that which is pure and noble. Joan, says the historian, was a tender of stables in a village inn. Such was her outward life, but there was for her another life, a life within that life. While the hands perform low, menial service, the soul untrammeled is away, and reveling amidst its own creations of beauty and of bliss. She is silent and abstracted, always alone among her fellows, for among them all she sees no kindred spirit, she finds none who can touch the chords within her heart, or respond to their melody, when she would herself sweep its harp-strings. Joan has no friends, far less does she ever think of earthly lovers, and who would love her, the wild and strange Joan, though perhaps the gloomy, dull, and silent one? But that soul whose very essence is a fervent zeal and growing passion, sends forth in secrecy and silence its burning love upon the unconscious things of the earth. She talks to the flowers, and the stars, and the changing clouds, and their voiceless answers come back to her soul at morn, at noon, and stilly night. Yes, Joan loves to go forth in the darkness of eve, and sit, beneath the radiant stars, still burning as they roll, and sending down their prophecies into her fervent soul. But, better even than this, does she love to go into some high cathedral, where the dim religious light comes faintly through the painted windows, and when the priests chant vesper hymns, and burning incense goes up from the sacred altar, and when the solemn strains, and the fragrant vapour dissolve and die away into the distant aisles and lofty dome, she kneels upon the marble floor, and in ecstatic worship sends forth the tribute of a glowing heart. And when at night she lies down upon her rude pallet, she dreams that she is with those bright and happy beings with whom her fancy has peopled heaven. She is there, among saints and angels, and even permitted high converse with the mother of Jesus. Yes, Joan is a dreamer, and she dreams not only in the night, but in the day, whether at work or at rest, alone or among her fellow men. There are angel voices near, and spirit wings are hovering around her, and visions of all that is pure and bright and beautiful come to the mind of the lowly girl. She finds that she is a favored one. She feels that those about her are not gifted as she has been. She knows that their thoughts are not her thoughts. And then the spirit questions, Why is it thus that she should be permitted communings with unearthly ones? Why was this ardent, aspiring mind bestowed upon her, one of earth's meanest ones, shackled by bonds of punery, toil, and ignorance of all the world calls high and gifted? Day after day goes by, night after night wears on, and still these queries will rise, and still they are unanswered. At length the affairs of busy life, those which to Joan have hitheretofore been but of little moment, begin to awaken even her interest. Hitherto, absorbed in her own bright fancies, she is mingled in the scenes around her, like one who waketh in his sleep. They have been too tame and insipid to arouse her energies, or excite her interest, but now there is a throbbing power in the tidings which daily meet her ears. All hearts are stirred, but none now throb like hers. Her country is invaded, her king in exile from his throne, and at length the conquerors, unopposed, are quietly boasting of their triumphs on the very soil they have polluted. And shall it be thus? Shall the victor revel and triumph in her own loved France? Shall her country thus tamely submit to wear the foreign yoke? 
and Joan says, No. She feels the power to arise, to quicken, and to guide. No one may tell whether it was first in fancies of the day or visions of the night that the thought came, like some lightning flash, upon her mind, that it was for this that powers unknown to others had been vouched safe to her, and that for this even new energies should now be given. But the idea once received is not abandoned. She cherishes it and broods upon it till it has mingled with every thought of day and night. If doubts at first arrive, they are not harbored, and at length they vanish away. Her spirit shadowed forth a dream till it became a creed. All that she sees, and all that she hears, the words to which she eagerly listens by day, and the spirit whispers which come to her at night, they all assure her of this, that she is the appointed one. All other thoughts and feelings now crystallize in this grand scheme, and as the cloud grows darker upon her country's sky, her faith grows surer and more bright. Her countrymen have ceased to resist, have almost ceased to hope, but she alone, in her fervent joy, has looked beyond the present clouds, and seen the light beyond. The spoiler shall yet be vanquished, and she will do it. Her country shall be saved, and she will save it. Her unanointed king shall yet sit on the throne, and Charles shall be crowned at the rhymes. Such is her mission, and she goes forth in her own ardent faith to its accomplishment. And did those who first admitted the claims of Joan as an inspired leader, themselves believe that she was an agent of the Almighty. None can now tell how much the superstition of their faith, mingled with the commanding influence of a mind firm in its own conviction of supernatural guidance, influenced those haughty ones, as they listened to the counsels and obeyed the mandates of the peasant girl. Perhaps they saw that she was their last hope, a frail reed upon which they might lean, yet one that might not break. Her zeal and faith might be an instrument to effect the end which she had declared herself destined to accomplish. Worldly policy and religious credulity might mingle in their admission of her claims. But however this might be, the peasant girl of Ark soon rides at her monarch's side, with helmet on her head and armor on her frame, the time-hallowed sword girt to her side, and the consecrated banner in her hand. And with the lightning of inspiration in her eye, and words of dauntless courage on her lips, she guides them on to battle and to victory. Ay, there she is, the low-born maid of Ark. There, with the noble and the brave, amid the clangor of trumpets and the waving of banners, the tramp of the war-horse and the shouts of warriors. And there she is more at home than in those humble scenes in which she had been wont to bear a part. Now for once she is herself. Now she may put forth all her hidden energy, and with a mind which rises at each new demand upon its powers, she is gaining for herself a name even greater than that of queen. And now does the light beam brightly from her eye, and the blood course quickly through her veins, for her task is ended, her mission accomplished, and Charles is crowned at Rhymes. This is the moment of Joan's glory. And what is before her now? To stand in courts, a favored and flattered one, to revel in the soft luxuries and enervating pleasures of a princely life. Oh, this was not for one like her. To return to obscurity and loneliness, and there to let the overwrought mind sink back with naught to occupy and support it, till it feeds and drivels on the remembrance of the past. This is what she would do. 
but there is for her what is better far, even the glorious death of a martyr. Little does Joan deem, in her moment of triumph, that this is before her, but when she has seen her mission ended, and her king the anointed ruler of a liberated people, the sacred sword and standard are cast aside, and throwing herself at her monarch's feet, and watering them with tears of joy, she begs permission to return to her humble home. She has now done all for which that power was bestowed, her work has been accomplished, and she claims no longer the special commission of an inspired leader. But Dunois says, no, the English are not yet entirely expelled the kingdom, and the French general would avail himself of that name and that presence which have infused new courage into his armies and struck terror into their enemies. He knows that Joan will no longer be sustained by the belief that she is an angel of heaven, but she will be with them, and that alone must benefit their cause. He would have her again assume the standard, sword, and armor. He would have her still retain the title of Messenger of God, though she believed that her mission goes no farther. It was probably not the first time, and it certainly was not the last, when woman's holiest feelings have been made the instruments of man's ambition, or agents for the completion of his designs. Joan is now but a woman, poor, weak, and yielding woman, and overpowered by their entreaties, she consents to try again her influence. But the power of that faith is gone, the light of inspiration is no more given, and she is attacked, conquered, and delivered to her enemies. They place her in low dungeons, then bring her before tribunals. They wring and torture that noble spirit, and endeavor to obtain from it a confession of imposture or connivance with the evil one. But she still persists in the declaration that her claims to heavenly guidance were true. Once only was she false to herself. Weary and dispirited, deserted by her friends and tormented by her foes, she yields to their assertions and admits that she did deceive her countrymen. Perhaps in that hour of trial and darkness, when all hope of deliverance from without or from above had died away, when she saw herself powerless in the merciless hands of her enemies, the conviction might steal upon her own mind that she had been self-deceived, that fantasies of the brain had been received as visions from on high. But though her confession was true in the abstract, yet Joan was surely untrue to herself. Still, it avails her little. She is again remanded to the dungeon, and there awaits her doom. At length they bring her the panoply of war, the armored suit in which she went forth at the king's right hand to fight their battle hosts. Her heart thrills, and her eye flashes, as she looks upon it, for it tells of glorious days. Once more she dons those fatal garments, and they find her arrayed in the habiliments of war. It is enough for those who wished but an excuse to take her life, and the maid of Orleans is condemned to die. They led Joan to the martyr stake. Proudly and nobly she went forth, for it was a fitting death for one like her. Once more the spirit may rouse its noblest energies, and with brightened eye and firm undaunted step she goes where banners wave and trumpets sound, and martial hosts appear in proud array, and the sons of England weep as they see her, the calm and tearless one come forth to meet her fate. They bind her to the stake. They light the fire and upward borne on wreaths of soaring flame, the soul of the martyred Joan ascends to heaven. Ella End of section 8